All right. Praise the Lord. Let's go ahead and find our, uh, find our seats, and uh, we'll begin. It's wonderful to see everybody, um, see some visitors, and uh, see some that uh, the summer is, is ending, and people are being able to come back together. Today, we're going to finish up our, our study of the book of Galatians. Uh, I hope that as we've gone through this book, that as much as anything, that our study of the book of Galatians has taken our focus and set it securely on the cross of Jesus Christ, where our salvation has been fully and finally paid for in his sacrifice. And the way that, I hope that it's it's made us focus in a way that Paul would say in the middle of this book, uh, in Galatians 2.20, for I am crucified with Christ. And that it's not just the setting our focus on, on, on the cross, but the way that verse continues. And nevertheless, I live, and the life I now live, I live in, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I hope that as we've studied this book and, and refocused on what God has done for us uh, through the Son on the cross, that it has both... Um, had an effect on how we see salvation as we've framed it with the solas that hang behind us and from the Reformation. And that also it has challenged us to, to reflect on our own identity and the things that we desire out of life and what we put our confidence in. I ask uh, Mallory and the, and the team, uh, the music, to sing the song again that we ended with, My Worth is Not in What I Own, because it is a confession of these truths Um, that I hope that we've been getting out of Galatians. And specifically, the song talks about boasting, which is where we will be today. I want to invite you to turn to the sixth chapter of Galatians, where in today's passage, Paul is continuing to address uh, what the life of the church should look like. Remember last, last week that I said, living like this is made possible only when we behold the truth of the gospel The truth where God gave himself in the second person of the Trinity on the cross for us. And that that truth is not meant simply to save us, but it is meant to satisfy us and to transform us. So that in the cross of, uh, of Jesus, we no longer need to use other people to build our self esteem, but we're confident that the cross has restored us in our relationship with God and that the finished work of Jesus Christ leaves nothing lacking. Or the way 2 Peter says in chapter 1, verse 3, out of the New Living Translation, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need to live a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself, by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And now, because we've been made complete in Christ, it's possible, Paul is saying, for us to live in a community of the church where we're living in that fifth sola for the glory of God, meaning we're able to pour out and give away from ourselves to others in a way to love God and serve God's people. With that in mind, I want to read the entirety of chapter 6, and then we're going to pray, 
and we're going to start in chapter 6, verse 6, and finish uh, the book. So read with me. I'm actually going to start out in chapter 5, verse 25, where I believe the thought begins. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep step with the Spirit. Let none of us become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Pray with me. Father, as we, uh, as we open your word now, we thank you for moving, not only in, uh, in the heart of the Apostle Paul, for his salvation out of such religiousness, but that when you saved him, you also had a purpose to move in him to write these words that would endure through the ages to speak to your people, whom we are, Lord, by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we have been made free from religiousness, and trying to earn your favor by the keeping of the Mosaic law and by ceremonial things. And instead, Lord, we've been called to a deeper relation than just religion, that we've been called, Lord, as your sons and daughters to be able to come into your very presence 
because our sins have been completely paid. And we've been given righteousness and a writing of our relationship with you. That our identities have been restored because of who we are in Christ Jesus and our purpose for living has been redeemed. Thank you for the word of God that speaks these things to us today. Lord, we ask that by your spirit you would open up our hearts that we would not just receive your word in our minds or in our ears, that they would not just make sense to us, but they would become life to us and that they would be heard in our spirit. That we would become new creations and continue, Lord, to be transformed more and more by your word, through your spirit, into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Speak to us, Lord, through your word now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting back in verse 6 of chapter 6, the first word in the Greek that's in that sentence is actually the word share. And because it's the first word, the way the Greek structure works, that's the word that gets the emphasis in this sentence. Share. Remember that Paul is writing this section as he starts out in verse 1 to brothers, to how we act within the church body. And how appropriate that the way he starts this sentence is to remind us to share. The Greek word share actually is the same root as the word koinonia, where we get fellowship. The idea is that the word share and the word fellowship should go so hand in hand that sharing with one another is the essence of what it means to be in fellowship, to share of both our persons and our possessions. And like we talked about last week, we can share with one another because we do it out of a full heart because God has first shared with us in Christ. We're a people that is called to follow a God who is a giver. And John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whomsoever believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. On the cross, we see in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that Jesus shared with us so that God in the second person of the Trinity on the cross shared with our sins our humanness, our pain, our suffering. Jesus took on the form of a servant when he was born, lived the life of a poor carpenter in an occupied country, and then died the death of a criminal, having been deserted by most of his friends and betrayed by another. God entered into our humanity and shared what it means to be human. He shared our sins, but that's not all he shared on the cross because it says that he also shared with us his righteousness. More than just satisfying the demands of the law on the cross, he put his obedience on us and counted his obedience as our righteousness. And now he shares his spirit with us who has become to us our teacher and our comforter and our guide and seal of our salvation. Because God is a sharer, 
his people who bear his image are called to share. Share all good things, the scripture says, not just money. But within this body of Christ, we're called to share the time that we have and the talents that God has given us and the treasure that God has given us with each other. We're called to share the blessings that God has put in our lives with others, to share a kind word, to share love, to share our life in a way that last week's passage says that allows us to bear one another's burdens and to walk with each other in the spirit of gentleness. And yes, to share our resources because that's how God designed the church to exist and run. Then the verse says to let the one who is taught. See, teaching is at its essence sharing. We have several teachers in our congregation who give of their lives to their students in preparation and in their time to go and do And even all of their treasures as they buy the things that they feel like add to the student's experience in teaching. Teaching is at its heart, sharing. And we share in the church the word of God, it says, to teach the word. I read one commentary this week that said, let let all programs go. Let pageantry go. Let big organization go. But do not diminish the ministry of teaching the Word of God. In a day that the Word takes back seat to all sort of other activities, we must be steadfast in its priority. In this section, Paul is addressing what it means to be in the church body. And I would say that one of the marks of the church, of the true church, is that it's a place where God's Word is shared with one another. Share all good things. And yes, it does also mention that we should share that with those who are teaching. And this church does that beautifully. I want to just encourage you out of the passage that if Trinity Bible Church is a place that you have come and you have been blessed by the sharing of the people here, both in God's word and in love and in life, that the Bible calls you to participate in that by then sharing what you have with the church body. Again, not just in treasure, which may be the first thing that we think about is sharing our money through tithes and offering and giving, but it's more robust than that in that the people of God gathered together in assembly are really called to share ourselves with one another and what that means. The verse goes then into into verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he reap. It's building off the idea of sharing. And what you share is what you're sowing. It also reminds us that we simply don't get away with living in continual sin without enduring the consequences. Many of our consequences, the consequences of our sin, don't happen immediately. They take time. And that may trick us into believing that we're getting away with our behavior. But the consequences are coming. And just because they don't happen immediately doesn't mean that they're not coming. And can I just tell you, yikes, when they get here. 
I played a lot of sports when I was younger. I would listen to the more seasoned people in my life talk about things like, I don't remember the last time I got up and something didn't hurt. And I'd be like, man, you're, you're old. Because I, I, at that time, I could go run, I could play basketball, I could do anything all, all the time, and I never hurt. I get at injuries, but it didn't matter. See, the consequences of things don't always happen immediately. But yikes when they get here. And you can barely get out of bed some days. Or those who simply memorize information before a test and think that by passing grades that way, that they can get away with it. And they never learn to study. But you know what happens? Class gets harder. And one day you find yourself possibly in a class that just studying a little information before test day won't get you by. And you find yourself pulling all-nighters at IHOP and Waffle Houses and weird places where they don't kick you out in College Station. But I, I digress. I'm speaking not of experience, but things that I've heard. Bad friends, specifically students. Sometimes we think that we can run around with people who we know that our parents wouldn't approve of and our God probably doesn't want us to be with, and we think that we can get away with it because the consequences aren't immediate until we hear their bad words coming out of our mouth and we see their bad habits being tempting temptations that are tugging at our heart. Eating poorly. Don't need to say anything. All I need to say is that um, the consequences of our poor behavior don't always happen immediately. But Robert Louis Stevenson said it this way, sooner or later in life, we all set down to a banquet of consequences. Don't fool yourself into thinking that your sin is not affecting you. God is not mocked. Verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to his spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. How many people uh, in your life have you had the chance to meet who talk about wanting to change a behavior? And the problem is that most of us look at behavior as the total sum or the, the end goal as the whole picture. But behavior is the end of a thought that has grown. The thoughts that we have and the way that we, the seeds that we sow in our life are the beginning of those things. I know someone who's wrestling with covetousness. And as they talk about being jealous coveting, and how much they would like to see that behavior go away and just be satisfied with the things that God has given them. And yet, they plant the seeds of social media in their life constantly. If you, what you plant, what you sow, you will reap. And focusing on the end goal misses the process that God has put in place. Christianity is not that complicated. If you want to mortify sin, quit planting sin seeds. And if you want to have behavior of holiness, 
began to plant the seeds of time with God through his word and in, by, uh, in, in prayer and just see if it won't make a difference in your life. It's been said you sow a thought and then you reap an action. You sow an action and you reap a habit. You sow a habit and you reap character. Sow character and you reap a destiny. Who doesn't want a good destiny? I want my destiny to be heaven. But on this earth, I also have several goals and dreams that I'd like for my destiny to be. What my life would look like. How I interact with people in the church. Those kind of things. But if I only focus on that, I may miss it. That that all starts with the seeds that I'm planting in my life. My thoughts. So can I simply ask you, what preoccupies your thinking? In your still times, what pops into your mind and how do you use those moments? Because that's guiding your destiny. Whether you believe that or not really doesn't matter. That's how God has designed it. He's not mocked. So it begs the question, what seeds are we sowing? Now, I want to clarify a couple things that Paul's not saying. One, Paul is not saying that by sowing good seeds of good behavior that we're going to earn God's favor or love or salvation. He's just spent the whole epistle talking about how salvation isn't by works, but it's by the grace of God alone. So he's not saying that if you want God to love you more, go start acting better and sow those seeds. That's not what he's saying. Neither is he saying that God moves or the economy of God is moved along by our sowing things to reap the same thing. Let me give you an example. If today I drop a $500 check in, this, in the tithe, that I can believe that having sown that money into the tithe box, God is now mysteriously going to drop a $5,000 check in my mailbox by some dead uncle that willed something to me. That's not how it works. But what, God, what Paul is saying is this. Sowing and reaping is just a principle which the Lord has established. It's how you live and the decisions that you make the things you involve yourself in, and they play in a large degree into the quality of your relationship with God and with others. And remember, this section again is written to the church. And so I've just spent a bit of time talking about how sowing and reaping could affect us in our individual lives, but now I'd like to to broaden that out and to say that what Paul's purpose, I believe, is is to remind us that as we interact with one another in this church body and in this assembly, that if we plant the seeds of friendly, helpful, gentle relationships towards one another, that we will become a church that is gentle and friendly and helpful as a whole. The seeds we sow is what we'll reap. And I also thank God because I believe that's exactly the character of this church. But I want to give us a warning from Paul's, uh, from Paul's writing here, which is to say that if we then begin to plant seeds of gossip, of haughtiness, conceit, comparison with one another, or what Paul characterizes as biting and devouring, if we let those seeds into our garden, 
then we shouldn't be surprised if that's how people will start treating us and if that's what our church grows into. God's not mocked. The seeds that we plant become the plants that we reap. Does it happen immediately? Again, no, and that's what verse 9 says. So let us not grow weary of well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. Our consequences, whether good or bad, don't happen immediately. They take time. Whether it's Bible reading, prayer, an accountability partner, or any other spiritual discipline that you've begun, or if it's like Paul's already said in the section, bearing one another's burdens, or restoring someone in love, or even seeing the seeds of the gospel that we've planted grow, it all takes time. And so Paul gives us this admonition. Don't grow weary. If you've been praying for someone that you care about who doesn't know the Lord, don't grow weary. If you've started a new spiritual discipline in your life, forsaking some habitual sin and beginning in earnest to try to be free from that, don't grow weary. If you've established maybe uh, or trying to restore a broken relationship and and it doesn't happen overnight, don't grow weary. See, it's easiest to grow weary when we see the least amount of results. Have you ever noticed that when you embark on something new, it's really easy to do it at the beginning because of the excitement of doing something new. And it's also easy to get excited right at the end when you see the results start happening and the end is in in sight. But you know where it's easiest to grow weary? Right there in the middle where the excitement of new is worn off and the results aren't visible yet. And so much of the way that we are called to love one another and to live together doesn't have immediate results. And so Paul reminds us, don't grow weary in well-doing. The prayers that you prayed 5, 10, 20 years ago, they were heard. And the answer just may not have come yet. The forgiveness that you gave, the love you showed, the patience you extended, none of it has been wasted. God's not mocked. Those things that we have sown, we will reap. And verse 10 says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. In essence, Paul's saying, since our consequences, or since our actions have consequences and those take time to develop, let's not waste any more time. Let's get started in loving one another. Let's find creative ways. And again, it's so easy to talk about this because it's it's a bit like preaching to the choir. I believe this is something that we do very well as a church. And so I want, I want to be thankful to God for the, the congregation that he's put here together. And yet also honest to the, the word of God and reminding us that that can change. If, if you're not living this way, if you haven't found a place to sow yourself into this congregation, I only want to tell you, you're the one that's missing out as much as anything. Because as you sow yourself into this congregation through friendly ways of giving away your love and giving away your life, you will reap back a church full of people who love and give 
And in your times of need, you will not walk alone. Then Paul puts in the scripture that seems totally out of place. If you're reading and you're in the flow of it and you're like, yes, Lord. And then you get to verse 11 and you're like, Whoo, see what large letters I'm writing to you. What? But all this is, is, is this is the place where Paul has been dictating this epistle to somebody who's been writing it down for him. And so often at the end of Paul's epistles, he wants to let them know some of his personal remarks or that it's been him that's been writing it. In those days, think about when you're communicating through a letter, how easy it would be to write down whatever's off the top of your mind and to sign it as somebody else and to send it out into circulation. And then everybody would be like, what? And so what the Apostle Paul here is doing is simply saying, this is my mark of authenticity. This is really from me. See the way I write, and you know the way I write, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. I think by inserting it right there, we can also say that the thoughts that he had for the epistle of Galatians kind of concluded there as he took the stylus and started to write on his own. And so what follows now is kind of directly out of Paul's heart, as a kind of summary statement for the book of Galatians and those things that were really dear to him and then finally the benediction that he wanted to leave with the people of Galatia as they read this. And so now we conclude as uh, the, the, the book with Paul's own heart. Verse 12 and 13. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Paul now goes back to the Judaizers that we began the book with. These people who had come up from Jerusalem and in kind of... in filtered into the Christian community in the Galatia area who are trying to get them to go to, to receive Christ, to believe in Christ, but that the idea was you had to first kind of be a Jew and then you could be a Christian. You, you had to continue at least to be circumcised and to keep the ceremonial law, the Torah, uh, that was given by Moses. These Judaizers claimed to believe in Jesus and claimed to belong to the Christian community, but the problem was they didn't want to give up being received in the Jewish community when they returned back to Jerusalem. And maybe their idea was, if they returned to Jerusalem and could say, look, we went up to Galatia and we talked to the Christians there and we convinced them to get physically circumcised and to obey the law of Moses, that when they got back to Jerusalem, they would be received there by the Jewish community and would not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Voss says of these people, they were not concerned about their welfare, the welfare of the believers. Neither were they concerned about the glory of God, but only about their own safety and reputation. I don't think that needs a lot of explaining as we think about our lives and how we're willing to live. But I can only say that the cross will always cost us. 
The cross will always be something that separates us from running with the other communities that we could belong to. The cross is not safe. But the cross is where the power of salvation is. So this says that they were, they were running to distance themselves from the cross, but that only shows the extent that the Judaizers didn't understand Christianity at all. They were moving away from the very thing that Paul was boasting in. They were, they were denying the very thing, or the, the place that God's power unto salvation in Romans was shown to us. Without the cross, Christianity is what has been called therapeutic, moralistic deism. If we're willing to move away from the cross, then what we do when we gather here on Sundays is simply to say a bunch of things that make each other feel better. Therapy. And to challenge each other to be a a better person. Morality. But no matter how much we say good things to try to make each other feel better or to try to be better people, without the cross of Jesus Christ and what happened there, God remains a deity to us and not a father. There is no restored relationship with the Creator outside of the cross of Jesus Christ. These people, instead of embracing the cross, put their boast, their confidence, in making converts out of others. Look, it says that their circumcision did not help them keep the law. In other words, they were empty because they knew that they didn't have a restored identity with God through trying to keep the law. Religion can never build your confidence in relationship with God. It always brings condemnation because none of us are able to keep the law well enough to restore our relationship with God. And so what it seems like in the Judaizers we have is people who knew that they weren't living the right way And so they simply changed their focus from trying to walk with God and earn and get his well-done, good and faithful servant through the cross. And instead they changed their focus to trying to win converts where everybody else in the court of public opinion would affirm them and tell them that what they were doing is right. So they turned their attention Uh, to see how many people they could get to follow them and affirm them. And listen, isn't that just like sinners today who want us to do more than accept their deviant behavior, but they demand that everyone affirm them? As if by having the approval of men, they can drown out the truth and the word of God. They put their boast, which is simply a way of saying their confidence in public opinion. Because they were so empty in their relationship with God, they still needed to fill themselves up with the affirmation of others. If we take away the cross of Christ, we have nothing in Christianity. But to sit in a building and try to affirm one another by saying good, sweet things and be a better person. Praise God that we have the cross, which is what Paul goes on to say in the very next verse. But far from me to boast in anything else except in the cross 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul wrote this, there, uh, the boast was also something that uh, a military commander would do to rally the troops before battle. Um, uh, I, I like the Lord of the Rings. It's one of my favorite uh, you know, things to watch when I have 10 hours to do nothing else and then pop in three extended versions. There's some absolute fantastic boasts that are made. My favorite one is by Aragon, the, 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 the king, when they're in front of the black gates and it's about to end and he rides in front of the men and he talks about, you know, we, we'll sally forth and have victory and there may be a day that it doesn't happen, but it's not this day. And I'm just like, gosh. I mean, even I can't sit on the couch and watch it because this, this boast has got me so ready. That's what a military boast was. It was what you used in time of fear or danger to find your courage and strength to build your confidence to fight and resist. And now in verse 14, Paul wraps up his argument by telling us that his boast is only in the cross of Christ. And if you look at what he says in this verse, he actually has kind of three crucifixions pictured in this verse. The first is the event of the cross of Jesus where God the Son gave his life for us and took our sin and gave us his righteousness. And this is what Paul puts his confidence in. This is, this is what gets him stirred up. This is what he brags about. What God has done for us on the cross. The next boast though, or the next crucifixion that we see is that in the cross the world has also been crucified to me. This is one of the results of the cross. Is that Christ now owns me. God owns me in the blood of Jesus. My identity is no longer a son of Adam in brokenness. But I am now, and you are in Christ, a son of God and a daughter of God. And as such... What can the world offer us to take away that? Or the way the Bible says, what would you exchange your soul for? In the cross of of Christ, we see God give himself for us. And the result is supposed to be that nothing shiny and glittery and fun in this world holds a torch to that. The last thing is then that he says, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is the victory where I have escaped the penalty of my sin, but also escaped the slavery of the passions of my mind and body, the way Paul says in Ephesians 2. Martin DeHaan said it this way, our salvation rests on the crucifixion of Christ. Our position resting on this foundation is guaranteed by the world being crucified to us. And the victory comes when we are crucified under the world. The cross is the place of death. By the cross of Christ, we are reckoned to be dead, one, to the law, two, to the world, and three, to self. And so Paul's boast habitually through his epistles was in the cross. First uh, Corinthians 1.31, Second Corinthians 10.17, both places Paul says, I will only boast in the Lord. I think it's coming, he, he gets this uh, out of 
uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. We just studied it, uh, studying Jeremiah and the youth. And I was reminded of this where Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What do we boast in? The cross of Jesus Christ, where the Lord God shows us The finished picture where sinners could come and be made right with God. And a picture that Ephesians 2, the chapter, seems to say that in the ages to come, all creatures are going to so wonder at that picture that Revelation says we're left with very little to do except cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Where is your boast? What do you put your confidence in? Verse 15 says that it's now through the cross of Christ, no longer uncircumcision or circumcision. It's not how we kept the law or how we didn't keep the law, but it's in new creation. Are you a new creation in Christ Jesus or the way Jesus told uh, Nicodemus? Have you been born again? See, God's not interested in making a better you It's a debtor you through the cross. It's a new you. The the, the very word for new creation in verse 15 says to bring into existence something that has never existed before. Did you know that that's what happened at the cross of uh, of Jesus? That God brought in a new person. The old things have passed away and all things have become new. Where? At the cross of Jesus Christ. Moving very quickly, 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. All who walk by what rule? This rule, that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And when you get that, you are allowed to enter into peace with your creator, with the God of the universe. And you're allowed to do that through his mercy. Lastly, I, just, I don't want to skip this picture where Paul says, as for me, uh, uh, from now on let no one cause me trouble, for I bear about the marks uh, in my body, the marks of Jesus Christ. The, the marks that he said there is the word is a brand mark. Branding was a way that, that you cut the flesh back in those days and you cut it in a pattern and it would grow back and scar. And so you would have an identifying mark on you by the cutting of the flesh and it would identify you into, in Paul's days, kind of one of five different ways. One, slaves were marked as a mark of ownership. Two, soldiers were marked as a mark of allegiance. Three, devotees or disciples were marked as a mark of consecration. Criminals were marked as a mark of warning. And the abhorred were marked as a mark of reproach. I want us to see what the cross did to Paul because I think by extension it's supposed to do it to us. 
Through the cross of Jesus Christ, Paul was marked as a slave because he was owned by God at creation, rebirth, and by the giving of the Holy Spirit. He was marked as a soldier for the kingdom of God, and that's who where his allegiance belonged. He was marked as a disciple to Jesus Christ and consecrated to his service. Yet by the world, he was marked and treated as a criminal because of his witness for Jesus Christ. And he was, by the religious Jewish leaders, abhorred and marked as a hated person with reproach. This is what the cross costs you. But there is no salvation any other way. And he ends it in verse 18. And let me just say this as we talk about the marks and the scars. I read this week. It really moved me. It just said this. When we get to heaven... God's not going to look over us to see the medals we wear, but the the scars we bear. There's no medals in heaven, but what scars will we have? Throughout Throughout the New Testament, they counted it as a privilege to be persecuted for Jesus Christ. In Acts 5, 40 through 41, we, we find very early on in the, in the new disciples' story after the resurrection that they go out and they will not stop talking about the Jesus man who rose from the dead, who was crucified on this cross. And, 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 and they're, they're told, if you just stop teaching in that name, and instead they won't, and they get punished, and they get flogged, and they get beaten, and they walk out of there rejoicing that they could share in the marks of their savior, or the way this poem said, Captain, beloved, battle wounds were thine. Let me not wonder if some hurt be mine. Rather, O Lord, let my deep wonder be that I may share a battle wound with thee. The cross will cost you. It isn't safe. It offends people. But it's where the power of God unto salvation is. Without it, we cannot be reconciled. It's the place where God the Son said, my life for you. Verse 18 is simply the benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. How fitting that Paul closes this book with a prayer about grace. In the face of those who would try to steal their peace by stealing grace away from their theology. And maybe it's a fitting way for us to end the study of Galatians for me just to bow and pray on our behalf and thank God for the grace that he's given us to show us his favor and his love. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for the grace and mercy you have shown us on the cross. Our sinful nature tells us to sit in our own shame and to hide from your light or to earn your love through our efforts. But you came to this earth and lived the perfect life so that we no longer need to be shackled by our sins. Your true freedom is found when we lay down our pride and bring our weaknesses to you. Thank you, Lord, for walking through this sinful world. You understand how we're tempted because you were tempted as well, yet you never sinned. Because you're human, It allows us to bring our every worry, our fears, and even our failures to your feet because we know you understand us. But because you're God, you are able to forgive, to help, and to heal us. Lord, now help us to approach your throne with confidence because it's the throne of mercy. 
when we try to hide our sin and our shame, remind us of your amazing grace. And I pray that you would draw us nearer. And your word promises that you will give us gracious help in our time of need. Lord, right now as we prepare to continue this worship service by reflecting on the cross through the elements, would you remind us of how unearned your sacrifice there was for us, but how completely sufficient it is to restore us in right relationship with you. And would our response be love and obedience and worship. In Jesus' name, amen.